another pot of coffee is brewing. (laughs) My third cup is almost finished. So that means it's time for Not Before Coffee. I'm your host, Ray, self-confessed bookworm, film addict, hermit, long-term depression sufferer, and most importantly, caffeine fiend. episode I'm going to do a mini film review as when I can't sleep I pick the strangest films currently on UK streaming services. I talk about some of my most recent mental health escapades because they're something of an adventure and I also also tell you about the hair experiment that could have gone very wrong. But first it's time for yet another installment of My Dreams Are Fucking Weird. It seems like this may become a regular slot especially if my subconscious has anything to say about it. Though I do think elements of this particular dream may have been influenced just a tiny bit by things I heard on the radio as I was sleeping. But I'm sure I'm not the only person who listens to the radio, or has the radio on at least, while they're asleep. Anyway, let me set the scene. I'm in a bar, which is unusual for me because I am not a... Okay, that's a lie. I do drink. I just don't tend to drink outside of the home. Anyhow, I'm in a bar. It's mostly a glass building with a gorgeous outlook. In fact, I am so sure I know where this is. This time there is no, I have no idea where I am or what country I'm in, like there was in last week's instalment. I am more than sure that I'm in a bar that A, doesn't exist, and B, is meant to be very, very close to where I live. But that isn't really relevant to the dream. So, we've established I'm in a bar. Not sure how many times I need to say that I'm in a bar. I'm with some members of my family, some of whom I haven't actually seen in years, and that part is very true. Our extended family kind of sucks. Just a bit. And we're having a conversation about something completely innocuous and I can't even remember what it is when an emergency bulletin comes onto the TV which is just above our heads warning us about a dangerous criminal called Dean who is on the loose apparently one of his key identifiers is a tattoo that he has under under his left arm that's in dark red ink and it just says I am Dean so it's really original Talk about specific details. Sometimes I scare myself with how much I actually remember when I wake up. So we've established this Dean, whoever he is, is dangerous. He's not to be approached. And the reason he's dangerous is apparently that he kidnaps women, suffocates them in clear plastic bags. And his key purpose for doing so is a message about the environment and how plastic is suffocating the planet. I'm not even going to touch that with a 10-foot pole because, again, I don't know. So, I'm with my family in the bar. Again, established that several times. The broadcast has been on the television and me being me, I say, right, my round, I get up and I head to the bar. I'm approaching it when I walk straight into somebody, which isn't actually far from reality I am very easily distracted. I tend to lose my concentration incredibly quickly when I'm not focused on a specific task. And I was probably, in my dream, looking at the floor because I don't like making eye contact. 
So I'm walking in, walking to the bar, bump into this person, completely not paying attention to my surroundings. And this person, whoever it is, leans down and whispers in my ear, you know who I am, don't you? Now, if this had been a nice dream, it would have been the man of my fantasies and you know who I am, don't you? Would have been the precursor to me and him going to a hotel room together. However, this is not one of those dreams. I tend not to remember them because they're too nice. I tell this guy that I don't. I shake my head and carry on to the bar. However, he grabs me by the arm, forcibly pulls me closer and swings me around quite roughly, flashing this kind of wolf-like grin at me. Think sinister, evil, nasty, all those lovely adjectives. He's all of them. He then tugs his shirt down. This could be where my dream turns into something nice. Of course it doesn't. This is my dream. And he reveals this red tattoo, which we've just been warned about via the TV bulletin. I try and pretend absolute ignorance, you know, smiling, nodding my head, gritting my teeth and thinking, oh God, I've got to get out of here very, very quickly. And then... I pull my arm out of his grip and keep on walking, thinking if I get further away, I'm going to be safe. Then there's a time jump. Don't know how long this time jump is. Don't know when I've moved into. Sometimes I really don't know what my brain is playing at. But then does everybody understand their brains at all times anyway? One minute I'm heading to the bar and being accosted by a madman. The next, it's pitch black outside. I'm back in this same bar again, wearing different clothes, and it's packed. The insane Dean has just arrived at the bar, walked in via an entrance I don't remember from the previous incarnation or the previous part of the dream, and he's carrying an assault rifle. He is obviously very, very angry and for some reason has decided this location is the core location that he needs to be at. I have no idea what's going on, but then I rarely do. From out of nowhere, seeing him, I take charge. I am not a take charge person. I really am not. I'd rather be sitting at the background, sitting in the background, nodding my head and being one of the, not followers because I don't blindly follow anything, but I'd rather just be the one that doesn't have to take responsibility That's why I don't have children. I have a cat. Don't have to take responsibility, apart from for myself. And it seems that in between being accosted by Dean in the bar and this time jump, whenever it happens to be, I've been recruited by a crack squad of undercover police investigators. And then like an insane villain in a super in a superhero movie or a badly written novel i start telling everybody that i'm part of this crack squad and i'm here to capture dean what is going on dean holds me at gunpoint and tells me that if i go with him everybody else in the bar will be safe after i've said okay this is fine i don't want anybody else to be hurt he directs me out of the bar, sort of occasionally tapping me with this gun to let me know that he is behind me. 
and walks around to the side of the building where a dark green Vauxhall Cavalier has been parked. If you've never seen one, look it up. My grandparents used to drive a dark burgundy one when I was a kid. It caught fire, but that's another story. He tells me to open the boot and get in. So I follow his instructions, but there's already a body in the boot. It's wrapped in plastic and it looks a bit like it's been vacuum packed. And that's it. At that point, I've had enough. I press my finger to my ear. I don't know why. Probably in my dream, it's because I think this is how I'm communicating with people. But it likely, the idea for it in reality came from watching loads of uh, detective programs and cop shows now and as a child and then I disarm him so all of a sudden I've become this superhero super strong super motivated person that I'm really kind of not but go me the dream ends with me sitting back in the bar with my family talking and laughing I have no idea what happened to Dean I have no idea what happened to them trying to capture him, find out his motivations, get all the gather all the victims together that had been killed or anything else. The dream ends on a high, I suppose, because we defeated the bad guy. I ended up being on a task force and I was a complete badass. And so sorry for my accent. I've probably absolutely slaughtered the way you're supposed to say it, isn't it? Badass? I have no idea. I'm too English. Anyway, that was the weirdness for this week. I should probably do a few hours of intensive research or perhaps have a few hours of intensive therapy to find out why I keep on having these dreams that have guns in them. But then, to be fair, why do we actually dream about anything at all? Answers on a postcard, please. I promised you a film review. And I'm going to 100% deliver. Over the last few weeks, I've been watching loads of crap. And by that, I mean loads. Last week, I mentioned that instead of finishing a book or watching a TV series that was brand new, I ended up watching Disney's Dad Napped because I couldn't sleep. However, I don't know if any of the Disney films I've watched recently including the newest Disney Plus exclusive, The Secret Society of Second Born Royals. Could they have not found a different title? They came up with The Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Could be worse than the film I decided to watch on Friday night when I couldn't sleep. And I have no idea why I picked it. So, what was the film I can hear you asking? Why? It was the fourth in the popular 1980s martial arts series the next karate kid from the opening credits to the end of the film i honestly thought i was watching a made for tv sequel but it wasn't this film had a 12 million dollar budget and that is actually nearly as much as the third film and the second film not together i think the third film had a budget of 12.5 million and the second film had a budget of 13 million. When it was released in 1994, 10 years after the original Karate Kid, it made just $15.8 million. So a profit of 3.8 million. In other words, it was an absolute 
box office disaster, which probably was hugely disappointing. However, not surprising when you consider Ralph Macchio had said he was too old to reprise his role as Daniel LaRusso. The only original cast member that came back was Pat Morita as Mr. Miyagi. And it's not even based in California, it's based in Boston. The film stars Hilary Swank, yes, the two-time Oscar winner, Hilary Swank, in her first lead role. She apparently beat out 500 other actors for the part of Julie Pierce. And it was partially, this casting was partially due to the fact that she had some gymnastic skill. Previous to this, she'd starred in a few TV series. She'd had a brief stint on Beverly Hills 90210, which I talked about last week. And she was also a very small part in the 1992 Buffy the Vampire Slayer film. So we have Hilary Swank. We have Pat Morita. There are a few well-known faces in the film, like Michael Ironside. But for the most part, they are people who have gone on to leave film entirely and move into other careers. So what's it about? The film starts with a dedication ceremony to Japanese Americans who fought in World War II. Mr. Miyagi meets up with Louisa Pierce, the widow of one of the men he served with in World War II and had had actually saved his life. Louisa invites Mr. Miyagi for dinner where he meets her granddaughter, Julie. And the scene where they meet is probably one of the most confusing in the film, apart from what the heck is this about? Because you are made to feel as though Julie's mother was Louisa's daughter when that's not the case. And I know it's not really relevant to the story at all. However, it is confusing because it turns out that Louisa's son was Julie's father. Julie is incredibly angry. Her parents died in a car accident. She was moved in with her grandmother and she's been rebelling ever since. We've got Julie, Mr. Miyagi and Louisa. So who's the next Karate Kid? In this film, there is no competition to train for, no prize to win, nothing really to prove and no massive cheering crowd at the end. There's no trophy, no amazing montage and definitely no crane kick. What we get in the next Karate Kid is a girl who skips classes, flouts authority, is rude to her grandmother, disrespects tradition and then everything is absolutely fine and dandy because it's shown that a part of the authority that she is ignoring is abusive and bullying. Not the best message to send to anybody. I guess I really should give you a summary of the film so you know why I watched it and thought, huh? And also, just in case you haven't seen it and are thinking of doing so, this might put you off. In a strange way, the whole film centres around an injured hawk, or at least it starts out that way. Julie has been breaking into the school every single night to nurse an injured hawk she calls Angel. The hawk is actually being kept in a cage-type room on the roof of the school, I don't know why, we never find out why, and I don't think we ever will. Her school is protected, and I'm losing using that term very loosely, by a group of football players that are called the Alpha Squad. They're led by a student called Ned, 
played by an actor called Michael Cavalieri, who you may well recognise from very small roles in projects like Shark, The Sopranos and NYPD Blue, though I wouldn't blame you if you didn't. And they are all, this Alpha Squad is all under the guidance of Colonel Duggan, who is played by Michael Ironside. Now, his name you probably will recognise. The first time we see Ned and his group, they are stalking through the school halls in stark black, making their presence known. Julie has just arrived at school and she's decided that, yet again, she's not going to attend classes. So she goes to a room that looks a bit like a, a greenhouse, sits in the corner where she believes she's going to be hidden, even though it's windows all around her, being serious, gets out her Walkman puts the headphones on and starts listening to music. Ned spies her and though there is zero context, he grabs her, is aggressive and starts making hints that he'll let her get away with whatever she's doing as long as she meets him on the docks as he's sure she's been there before. This sets us up to know that Ned and his friends are awful. Ned's a potential rapist. There is so much about him that is reminiscent of the creepy stalker films you have seen quite often now appearing on Netflix and things but she says no way pulls her arm away from him and then he gets her taken to the headmaster's office sorry principal's office where she is accused of smoking which she hasn't been because that's obviously something far more serious the fact that she was skipping classes is also a negative And she is told to get back to class while a conversation is going on between the principal and Colonel Duggan, who essentially tells the headmaster. Now, this is the thing that I don't get. He tells the headmaster she breaks one more rule and she's out. There is no negotiation. But I thought the principal was in charge. Colonel Duggan is a coach a football coach so why does he have so much power over what is decided in the school there's another scene that comes up later on that makes you think is he a mafia don or something because he has so much power he can change everything manipulate whatever to get his own way and i don't know why he's got some so much against julie also (laughs) this is something that i forgot to mention earlier and it amazes me Mr. Miyagi, having only just met Julie and only for a few moments, has told Louisa that she needs a break and she can go and stay in his home in California for for some time away. And he'll stay and look after Julie. Who in their right mind would leave their mourning grandchild, no matter how old they were, with someone the child doesn't know, they haven't seen for years... And go off to stay in their house. The funny thing about all of this is Julie is not so disturbed by the fact that this stranger is staying in her home. She's angry that her grandmother has gone and it's her birthday in a few weeks. Now we've done all of that, we're getting to the core of the film. Julie continues to sneak into the school at night to feed her hawk. She's been seen by another member of the Alpha Squad called Eric played by Chris Conrad. He's less like Ned and only part of the squad because Duggan has promised that he'll help him get into the Air Force. 
as I said, he has this amazing influence and you have no background story for him. So you don't know whether he served in the forces, what infl- what he did. Okay, so he was a colonel apparently. So why is he now working in a high school? Julie has been seen by Eric, who looks, <laughs> I have to be honest, more like he should be working as a bouncer in a club than a student at a high school. He looks like he's in his 30s, at least. He's far less willing to tow Duggan's line. And when she reali- when Julie realises that she was followed, she follows Eric to his job at the railway, where he is a security guard, and spends the entire time pestering him to find out what he's going to do about the hawk. What are you going to do about the hawk? What are you going to do about Angel? Are you going to tell anyone? I just need to know that you're not going to tell anyone. Tell anyone. She is obsessed with this hawk and that is the conversation for the almost the entire time they're sitting on top of this train while he's supposedly working and she's got so many opportunities to say other things and it's just what are you going to do about the hawk are you going to tell anyone about the hawk I just want to make sure that you're not going to tell anyone I just want to know what you're doing it's enough to drive a sane person insane and as I'm already past way there not going to help Eventually, of course, Julie's luck has to wear out, and it does. She is at the school when Ned and his goons show up. The police arrive as she is being chased out of the school, and the chase scene is actually quite reminiscent of a scene in Jurassic Park, you know, when they're being chased through the kitchen. She's hiding underneath one of those metal counters, and Ned finds her. And you'd be excused for thinking it was a scene that is leading up to a sexual assault because that is the vibe that he gives off. She is arrested because for some reason, Colonel Duggan is with the police. She's gone to the police to say, look, help me, I'm being chased by these boys. And there are about seven of them. They're a lot bigger than she is. She gets to the police car and Duggan gets out of the car. As I said, is he a mafia don? Does he have some contact in the police force that he's paying off? You never find out. So Julie is arrested and Mr Miyagi goes to collect her and tells her that as she's not going to be at school for a while because she's been suspended, unsurprisingly, he's going to take her on a trip. Oh, and I did forget something that probably is kind of important in this entire story. Julie and Miyagi have an argument when her grandmother goes away. Julie runs out of the house and narrowly misses being hit by a pizza delivery driver by jumping onto the bonnet of his car. She lands in what Miyagi then refers to as a tiger pose and it is all shown in such cheesy slow motion that it wouldn't be out of place with this noise. Mr Miyagi and Julie head off on a trip. We've already mentioned Miyagi has said he's going to take her somewhere. She's got no idea where they're going and there doesn't appear to have been any conversation with Louisa about going out of state. In fact, since she left, Louisa has barely been mentioned which is kind of surprising. There's a scene in a really rural 
petrol station where Mr. Miyagi calms a large Rottweiler and the owner doesn't take kindly to it. So there's a tiny fight. It's over in moments and is so unexciting, it's really easily forgotten. However, Julie, as is her way, goes on about it for ages. Miyagi is, I don't want to fight. I don't like fighting. There is no need for it. And Julie just carries on. Oh, that was amazing. That was fantastic. How did you do it? I want to learn, blah, blah, blah. You get very, very tired of her incredibly quickly. And what happens next is just bordering on ridiculous. It's incredible to to remember, really, that just five years after Hilary Swank was in The Next Karate Kid, she won an Oscar, her first Oscar for Boys Don't Cry. When you see this, you will probably find it very difficult to equate her with the actress that she later becomes. But back to the story. Miyagi and Julie are staying at a Buddhist monastery. Yes, a Buddhist monastery. You heard that right. As punishment for breaking into the school and getting suspended, Julie is now spending time with a building full of monks. She gets further training in karate, which she apparently has an affinity for because her father taught her and her father was taught by his father, who in turn was trained by Miyagi, though he had previously told Danny that he'd never trained anyone before. But that's continuity that it's probably irrelevant because by the time people got to this film, they'd probably forgotten what was said in the first one, unless they're like me. She is throw bags of hay are thrown at her as part of her training. She's blindfolded and told to use her senses, which comes up later in the film. And she is also asked to jump kick, I think, between two rocks that are in a Zen sand garden that are meant to represent Japan and Okinawa and she somehow in all of this manages to alienate an entire monastery because she tries to flatten a beetle that's crawling across the dining table with one of her trainers of course she also sneaks out to call Eric you remember him right we mentioned him earlier security guy at the train station who is one of Duggan's guys that doesn't really like him she calls him because he's now taken responsibility for Angel while she's out of town. It just proves that she has no other friends. But then seeing how she acts, that's unsurprising. And gets him into trouble. But that's another story entirely. Having turned everyone against her by trying to kill this beetle, she goes and takes a stick insect or maybe a cricket. I'm not really up on my entomology at all. I'm not a massive fan of insects on any sort of level. She takes it from its natural habitat and gives it to one of the monks. And that apparently heals every single rift that she has been she has caused since she arrived at the monastery. Okay, right at the very beginning of the film, she was, as you will remember, Julie was upset because her grandmother was going to miss her birthday. It seems... That has all been forgotten. We didn't forget it as the audience. She forgot it as the character because on their last night at the monastery, the monks sing happy birthday to her, give her a cake that she blows out the candles on, offer her a wish and say that they've also got a special gift for her. The wish is that they will come and spend some time with her and Miss Miyagi in Boston, which even though they've never left the monastery, they accept. And the gift is an odd one. 
one of the elderly monks is going to fire an arrow at Mr. Miyagi. Yeah, that's her gift. They're going to fire an arrow. And this isn't a blunt arrow or anything else. This is a sharp arrow and they are going to aim it at his chest. Of course, he catches it as though it were a fly and his hands were a pair of chopsticks. Cue people going, I remember that from the first film. I wonder if that was the relevance of it anyway. Their time at the monastery is now over and Julie has to return to school. And she gets there only to discover that her beloved angel, the hawk, has been discovered and taken away by animal control. Creepy Ned is responsible. Yes, Creepy Ned. Because of course he has to be. We have no motivation behind his attitude, but he has to be the core of everything. Eventually, Eric asks Julie to prom because it seems that if the lead in a film is a teenage girl, no matter the plot, then prom is hugely important. Mr. Miyagi goes and buys her a dress. He teaches her how to dance using odd karate steps, which is the funniest thing you've ever seen, especially when you see her putting it into practice at the prom. And then the monks arrive just in time for her to introduce them to Eric, who comes to take her to the prom. He takes her in his prized car and then after they've had their first slow dance at the prom, everything is ruined by Ned and some of his followers who perform this really weird bungee jump stunt. Seriously, they've got bungee ropes tied to the rafters in the gym. They jump off the rafters and end up flattening tables, the decorations, and this archway that people are having their prom photos taken in. There's zero rhyme or reason to this scene, but I have to be honest, by this point, I'd actually realised that the film made very little sense. Of course, it's now nearly over, which was a massive relief, especially when I looked at the clock and saw that it was, I think, half past one. Eric drives Julie home and just as they're about to kiss, Ned, who has been creepily stalking them in his great big Jeep, smashes Eric's windows in with a baseball bat, then tells Eric to meet him at the docks unless he's chicken, where they can finish things once and for all. If you understood what things were, it would be great, but there's never any indication of what caused all this animosity nothing. Julie gets out of the car and heads into the house to get Mr Miyagi having seen that Eric is definitely intent on getting revenge and he drives to the docks where he confronts Ned. This is something that to me was very strange. Not that Ned went to meet him because I think if anybody had been antagonistic and said come and meet me and I will finish it you'd be like okay I'll go. What got me was they arrive, he arrives at the docks, he goes to confront Ned and then behind him you see all of his friends from the Alpha Squad in their black gear heading over to his car. They douse it in petrol and set it on fire. So you see the confrontation starts as his car explodes in the background. Colonel Duggan is there. This is a guy who is an authoritarian, a rule follower but he is approving of illegal actions. Ned and his friends then proceed to beat Eric up. He's beaten almost to a pulp by the time Mr Miyagi and Julie arrive on the scene. And Julie, for some inexplicable reason, though in a way probably not 
because he's been bullying her the whole time and harassing her. She asks him for permission to fight Ned and says that if she doesn't do it, she's never going to forgive herself. She's got to prove herself. So we have a slow motion fight scene, which is so unexciting. It it just is. It's so unexciting. It lacks energy, has no emotion and is over really quickly. Then Duggan, who has watched everything steps in he can't understand why ned and his friends won't continue to beat eric up and mr miyagi says i'll I'll fight even though we've already heard him say i don't want to fight duggan accepts and is then beaten as we knew he would be by miyagi he ends up on the floor with all of his followers looking down on him and you realize that he's now lost his power center but as I've said already, there is no reason for any of this animosity. You don't under, you never get to the core of why it happened in the first place. Okay, so Ned wanted in Julie's underwear. We get that. But that doesn't mean that the entirety of his group, including the teacher, are standing there and helping him do it. I did forget there are two other scenes that happen one slightly before the prom and another during as we already established when julie arrives back from the monastery angel has been taken by animal control for some reason in a scene that has no real meaning at all julie and mr miyagi go and collect animal angel from the animal rescue they then go to this lake setting and free her it's very very sweet But when you think about it, there was no need for her to be in the film at all. That angel, that is. There was no need for Angel to be in the film at all. She didn't serve any real purpose because apparently the animosity was already there and that wasn't going to make it any worse. And also, while Eric and Julia are at the prom, the monks go bowling. Oh, good grief. This scene was just ridiculous. They make friends at the bowling alley. They use Zen bowling and beat this professional team of bowlers. It's just ridiculous. I have to say, if you hadn't already gathered, I have a lot of issues with the next Karate Kid. It wasn't a necessary added. Uh, I can't even say the words now. It wasn't a necessary addition to the series. And I'm not sure why they made it at all. However, my biggest issue, as I've mentioned, is the antagonism between Ned and Julie. Unless it's that he's a potential abuser who doesn't like being turned down, there doesn't seem to be any reason for this animosity. You've got no background. At least Daniel and Johnny had some petty teenage rivalry thing going over Ali. It was petty, as I've already said, but it made a lot of sense because Johnny was dating Ali, she dumped him, she moves on with Daniel, the new guy, whereas this, you almost jumped in halfway through. Unsurprisingly, I looked this up afterwards because I thought, I wonder what other people thought of this. Did they think it was as rubbish as I did? So I looked it up on Rotten Tomatoes. It got 7%. Yes, 7. One single digit. And over on IMDb, it got 4.4 out of 10 which surprised me because I thought maybe it would have qualified for a two. Right now, as I've said previously, these are things that I've watched on streaming services and this is currently on Amazon Prime, but I would recommend you picked absolutely 
anything else. So now that you've heard all about the dumpster fire that is the next Karate Kid, I think I'll do you a huge favour and introduce you to a fantastic podcast by two amazing fellow tweeters. Hi friends! Hi! Welcome to They're Terrified and Tipsy. start okay my name is Courtney uh I love long walks on the beach Mm -hmm. white wine and I absolutely love scary movies and I'm Stephanie I also love long walks on the beach I love white wine but I absolutely hate (laughs) scary movies so Stephanie Mm -hmm. can I ask you a question please why in the hell would you want to watch scary movies and do a podcast on scary movies when you hate them Oh, that's easy um, because you forced me. Mm, that's that's true. <laughs> but you know what? Hmm. There's wine. Yeah. So I'm basically only here for the wine. <laughs> lots and lots of wine. <laughs> We're going to need it. <laughs> well, since we have very different feelings about scary movies, we decided to share our emotional struggles with you all. Yeah. So grab a glass of wine, your mm-hmm. favorite couch blanket, and get comfy and enjoy the ride with us. Also, you can find their Terrified and Tipsy on Instagram and Twitter, plus all the podcast platforms. For links, head over to tipsypod.com. Cheers! So, why not head over and listen to one of their fantastic episodes after you finish listening to mine? In the last episode, I promised you, or maybe that should be threatened, with an update on everything in the Ray world. Yay! It's branded. I'm gonna I'm going to actually trademark that. A whole world of mine, though not with multiple versions of me, because I don't think I I could A invest that much time in a lot of other me-like people, and B being around that many people all the time would be exhausting. Last weekend, I saw people and spent the entirety of Sunday recovering. So as much as I love people and speaking with them over screens and everything is fantastic, seeing them in person is absolutely draining. And that's probably because I am hugely introverted. I might sound hugely extroverted and enthusiastic, but that's because I am sitting here talking to a microphone not sitting here face to face with people which for me is the most draining thing on the earth so here it is my update this is only going to be a quick summary because otherwise I could be here until next month talking about it and I'm determined I'm not going to bore you with the details I promise way back in the dawn of time when dinosaurs still roamed the earth yeah I'm that old I was prescribed some fantastic medication for my depression. These pills worked wonders and believe me, I was on a lot of different ones. I think the list of medications I've not taken is shorter. So I was prescribed these fantastic meds by my psychiatrist and they helped me to be somewhat not sane because I don't think anybody's really 100% sane if they are then they're possibly lying to themselves they helped me to cope with the everyday far more than not being on medication does 
Unfortunately, last November, there was a disaster in the supply world, not disaster in general. There was a disaster in the medical supply world. And for some reason, my medication was on the chopping block. Granted, temporarily, but it was on the chopping block. After six days of stubbornly hoping, and I am very stubborn, I didn't want to phone the doctor. I was determined to wait until I got a phone call from the chemist saying, we've got your pills in stock. They didn't. So I was waiting for no reason. After six days, I finally admitted defeat and contacted my GP. Of course, in the interim, I'd my my brain had done this wonderful I hate you thing. I was irritable. I was bitchy. I was tearful. I wasn't sleeping. And it was not fun for anybody. It reached the point actually where I went into work one day and they called me into a meeting and they actually sent me home. And it was horrifying because my brain was at that point, I was so paranoid. My brain was telling me they're going to fire you. They're going to fire you. And when I walked into this meeting and all of the managing board was there and they said, you're going home. My immediate thought was, I'm not going to have a job when I come back. Of course, I am still working there and I actually celebrated my two year anniversary this week. So it all worked out fine. But at that point, my brain was massively against me it was my biggest enemy so I went to my doctor and he gave me another medication the highest dose they could prescribe and to a point it worked it's not 100% great and the tablets aren't coated they taste disgusting and they always dissolve on my tongue so I'm always left with this horrid aftertaste that lasts all day and of course, when I take another pill in the evening, they last all night. So it's it's fantastic fun. I stopped crying at everything and was actually able to finally get some semblance of a sleep pattern back. I was still quite irritable, but I knew that this would be the case when I changed medications because they weren't as strong as my old meds. And though they were in the same medication group, they weren't 100% for the same purpose. So it was a riot. Of course, things do change. And finally, two weeks ago, after, what, 10 months, they finally got my old meds back in stock. I got a call from the chemist telling me they were able to order them again. But because my last original order was back in November, I had to get a new prescription from my doctor. So when I went for my injections for other issues, I got a new prescription and I started taking my old meds again. I'm two weeks into my new old meds. And of course, as with any time you change medication, I am a mental mess. I want to hide my head under a cover most of the time. I am drinking more coffee than I normally would and I drink a lot we've already established that I either sleep for hours or I don't sleep at all and I spend a lot of time crying in fact I can't remember what film I watched this afternoon but I spent most of my time sobbing through it and I think it was meant to be a comedy and then of course I watched Hot Fuzz but that's another story however 
this is a good thing. A friend of mine pointed out when I had a virtual coffee with her this morning, we haven't actually seen each other in person for a while. Well, that's a lie. We saw each other on Wednesday when she took me and my cat to the vets where I waited for over an hour (laughs) just for her vaccinations and her claw trim. But previous to that, we hadn't seen each other since February and we meet online for coffee every Sunday. She pointed out to me when I saw her this week that everyone is feeling very, very similar to me at the moment. We're in the midst of massive change. Loads is happening all over the world and everyone is in the process of or has tipped over a cliff in some way or another, emotionally, mentally. We're feeling isolated. We are actually reaching that point where we are possibly going to all be in another lockdown and that is horrifying so she's um, she's making sense really it's just I can't tell if more of my emotion is my emotional instability is because of the medication change or because of everything else that's happened and is happening right now I guess In reality, I'm just going to have to wait and see. And if I am still feeling this way after a month on my new old meds, then there is hope. If I'm still like this in in another couple of weeks, then in all likelihood, it has nothing to do with the medication and more to do with the current situation that we all found ourselves in. But who knows so that was it though I don't want to end this on a meh note so I'm going to tell you all about my recent hair escapades because they are funny and they are probably going to make you laugh more than they made my family laugh when I showed them the photos last Saturday I'm at an age where my roots grow in and they grow in more grey than my mid my natural mid blonde I haven't been to the hairdresser for a colour in over a year, partially because I try to eke it out as long as I can and also obviously because we had a sort of four-month shutdown before the hairdressers opened again and now getting an appointment at a hairdresser or my particular hairdresser is like finding gold coming out of your taps. Impossible. So... I looked in the mirror toward the end of August and realised that I really needed to do something about the colour of my hair because the roots are getting very, very pale with grey. I'm getting silver grey through my lengths and it has started to look really brassy because it hasn't been coloured in a year, though I did have about 10 inches cut off the length back in January and it's starting to grow into a nice length. It's really healthy And I'm happy with that aspect, just wasn't happy with the grey. So I went online thinking, I'm going to find the right colour. Because of course, who doesn't want to find that perfect colour, especially if they're doing it at home. And I thought, okay, I'm going to get something that's neutral, natural, no red tones, because I am cursed with the kind of colour that goes incredibly bright ginger and when I say bright ginger I will post photos on either my Instagram which is Ray's Reading Room or over on Twitter 
where I am incredibly active. So you can see what I mean by bright ginger. Anyway, cue me being very, very efficient. I ordered my colour from Amazon. So I didn't have to go out to get it, partially because breathing through a mask actually hurts and partially because my local boots is open at very odd hours because of staffing. I ordered a neutral blonde, which was supposed to have the neutralizing effect so it didn't make your hair go too light or too ginger. I followed all the instructions, rinsed the color off and stared in the mirror and thought, what the heck has just happened? No joke, it was the brightest ginger you have ever seen. You'd have probably noticed it from space. It was that bright. So next stage, I'm thinking, okay, it's this color. I will get a toner. I ordered a mid-blonde, ash-toned toner and some developer. And two days later, I used it on my hair. It was still ginger. Tiny bit toned out at the ends, a little bit more ashy at the ends, but my roots were still so bright. They were reflecting light without a light on. It was a bit horrific to look at from my perspective. Other people may like it. However, I'm incredibly pale and a colour that bright makes me look very ill. So I thought, right, third time's a charm. I ordered some purple shampoo thinking this will be okay for our meeting on Friday. Maybe the purple shampoo will arrive before the meeting so I can color my I can do something with my hair at lunchtime before this meeting it didn't it arrived at about half past four just as the meeting was about to start so I had no time to do anything with my hair I tied it back I made sure the lights in my office were a little bit dim went into the meeting and the first thing someone said to me was oh you've colored your hair my immediate reaction was, don't look at me. Please don't look at me. Can someone else do this? Of course, I then had to do three different things in the meeting. And all that was in my head was, you've coloured your hair and it's ginger. I've got nothing against ginger. It just is not the right colour for someone with my translucent skin. I think ginger looks amazing. On There's loads of people it suits. It is just not the right colour for my skin. And I really am frustrated that the second that the toner I used and then the purple shampoo that I left on my hair for 20 minutes on Friday evening didn't work. So having noticed it didn't work Friday evening, as soon as I realized my hair was dry and it was still this color, I went online and I ordered a darker toner very, very quickly so that it would arrive the next day because I was seeing people that would have just laughed oh they laughed at the photos but they didn't laugh at my hair because by Friday by Saturday evening my hair was this kind of darker deeper color very very ashy tones especially at the ends slightly reddish but only slightly at the roots and I think it looks really good however I am going to try and get it more ashy 
What I am very, very grateful for is I've started to watch the most entertaining videos on YouTube. And these are the sort of videos that people record when they know that they're going to make an absolute disaster of their hair because they have every intention of using 40 volume bleach three or four times in a row and they know that that means their hair is going to turn into noodles it's going to look like noodles and then it's going to start to fall out I didn't do this so my hair is an okay tone it's still in good condition my trick 20 20 volume 20 volume you don't need any more okay so that's it for this week I do hope you've enjoyed listening to my random thoughts maybe discovered a film you probably won't want to watch and got to know a little bit bit more about me including why I will not be appearing in any YouTube hair disaster videos again 20 volume and all that's left to say right now is I'm pretty active on social media so if you want to follow me to find out what I've been up to between recordings or just want to come over and say hi I promise I don't bite you can find me at need underscore three underscore mugs on twitter and not before coffee podcast on facebook of course I also mentioned that I'm over on instagram at ray's reading room I post in these reg- in these locations regularly about books I've been reading, episode planning, and a lot of other podcast-related stuff. Well, my mouth is very, very dry yet again. In fact, my lips are starting to crack. That means it's time for another cup of coffee, so I'm going to put the kettle on. And until next time, this is me saying farewell. Farewell.